This is Brown's Digest. What's going on, Dog Pound? Hope you guys are hungry. We are back for episode 10 of the Brown's Digest podcast. And I am very excited to announce that this will be the final episode of the first season. And there's no better way to basically go into a new experience with all of you listeners than having our first official guest of the Browns Digest podcast. And this is someone that has helped me out a lot and uh, was actually one of my first guests on the Browns Digest tailgate show that I had last season. And this is no other than James Rapine. He is a writer for the Cincinnati Bengals on SI and also does the Cincinnati Bengals Locked On Bengals podcast. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sean. How are you, my man? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, just to be able to complete a first season, I feel like it's a huge milestone in the right direction. No doubt about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember the the tailgate show. That was fun. You were the first live pregame tailgate hit I did. And obviously things were weird because of COVID last year, but uh, that, that was certainly a good time. And it was a really good game that went back and forth. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm excited to see you know how the Bengals games will plan out this year. Joe Burrow definitely uh, set up his panache in the NFL early on in his career. And I definitely think he's going to be a franchise quarterback for the Bengals. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think that that's, if there's a, a ray of sunlight, a ray of hope at Paul Brown stadium right now, it's Joe Burrow. And it's uh, him not only coming back from that injury, but developing into one of the NFL's better quarterbacks. That's their vision. And they certainly think he can be a top 10 guy and we'll see if he could take a step, even though he's been rehabbing that knee, I think a lot of people expect him to take a step forward in his development in year two. Yeah, and having a, a big sophomore jump, I think it's going to be huge for Joe Burrow. I know a lot of people, um, Bengals fans included, probably are a little bit scared after seeing that picture of him kind of sitting on that throne with the new white jerseys and seeing that scar up his knee. What were your initial thoughts when you first saw that picture? Oh, <laughs> yeah, look, it, you know it's going to uh... – be there. I actually took it as, wow, Joe's telling everybody that he's just fine, right? That, yeah, that the scar's there. He isn't forgetting about it. And I, we kind of knew at that point, and I know you're going to ask me about Jamar Chase and, and the draft at least a little bit, but we knew at that point, at least behind the scenes, that Jamar was the favorite in the clubhouse. And there were still some that thought that it would be Penny Sewell, but obviously they went with Jamar Chase. And to me, that was... Uh, Joe with a, a subliminal message to fans like, yeah, I remember the scar and I see it. I get it. It's a battle wound. But uh, just trust us. We're going to get things right. And, and we'll see if they do. Um, and then on the flip side, I think and, and some of your listeners probably think this. Uh, I know there are a lot of Bengals fans out there that would take that scar, zoom in on it and say, this is why you take Pene Sewell. And so it became ammo on, on both sides. But I think that was what Joe was saying is, yeah, I'm recovered. My knee's fine. Yeah, there's a scar there, but we're uh, we're going to be ready to go for the start of the season. Yeah, and I mean, that's a perfect segue into our first topic. So, you know, one of the questions that was all over draft night is rather the Bengals outside of Kyle Pitts falling to them, which was I think would have been a dream scenario outside of obviously getting Jamar Chase. 
was either taking the receiver or taking Panay Sewell. Um, me personally, I also had a little bit of questions of what if Rashawn Slater could have been that person, seeing that you guys didn't need more interior offensive line um, starters because of the signing of Riley Reef and free agency. So when you look at the in total picture, they lose A.J. Green and John Ross in free agency, and then they bring in Jamar Chase. Do you think that the signing of Riley Reef had any impact on the decision to go chase over Penesul? It did because it plugged what they probably felt was their biggest weakness. And I know he's only on a one-year deal. I don't think Riley Reef is necessarily just a one-year stopgap. Uh, he could be a two- to three-year type solution where the, the salary cap goes up. If he plays well this year, they sign him to a, a one- to two-year extension, something like that, as he enters his mid-30s. So I, I do think it was a factor. I, I don't think it was the factor. And what I mean by that is, yeah, it, it basically allowed the Bengals to not feel like they needed to reach for Panay Sewell. Not that it would have been a reach in most people's minds, but on their board, Jamar Chase was clearly the better player. Now, it wasn't head and shoulders better, but they had him higher on their board, and it was obviously a need. And so would you take the the lesser of the two if your offensive line didn't add a, a former pro bowler and a proven commodity at right tackle? Maybe. And again, that's not me to be m- meaning that I'm trying to be disrespectful to Penny Sewell. He's just lower on the board. And then when it comes to Slater, it certainly would have been a reach based on what I've heard about the Bengals, their draft board, where it was. Not that they were against taking him. I don't think they were entertaining the idea of taking him at five, especially with three quarterbacks going in the top three. But you're not alone in that. A lot of people, uh, especially nationally, we're talking about Slater, Sewell, Sewell, Slater. And the Bengals, it was Chase. And if Chase doesn't happen to be there, it was Sewell. And if he doesn't happen to be there, then it would have been Kyle Pitts. And I, I have that on pretty good authority. So that's that's how they viewed it. They stuck to their board at five and bringing in a veteran like Riley Reef just allowed them to feel more comfortable with, you know, their their offensive line, knowing that Chase might have been the pick. And it allowed them, I think, to to be comfortable doing that, even though obviously offensive line has been an issue in Cincinnati for a couple of years now, or not even a couple of years, five years, if you go back to 2016. Right. And that's what you really want to do in free agency. You want to uh, try to address some major needs in a way that you feel comfortable enough that you don't have to reach, you know, in the draft, especially like you said, based off their board. If Jamar Chase is the best player available based off of what you can see down the line, you really want to use the draft as an opportunity to find talent that's going to be there, you know, hopefully for like potentially a five year window and on, given that they produce the way that they need to. And if there's a situation where you can get arguably the number one receiver in Jamar Chase, you can always find more offensive linemen. You can either sign one in free agency like they did. And then, of course, the more swings you take at that position, the higher the chance of in a situation if you don't sign Riley Reef for you know a longer term contract, you at least have younger guys in the range that are ready to take that spot. And one of the things I really liked about the decision to take Chase is that he now joins Tyler Board and T. Higgins. And I would say, arguably, that's one of the best receiver, young receiver cores in the NFL, given the talent. We know Tyler Board, uh, even coming out of college, breaking all of uh, Larry Fitzgerald's college records at Pitt. T. Higgins coming out of Clemson definitely had some talent. And how do you think or how impactful will 11 personnel be next season for the Bengals? Oh, I mean, look, if they play to their potential, they have the best wide receiver unit in the in the AFC North. 
And there are going to be some that say Pittsburgh, others that are going to say Odell, Jarvis. Obviously, I know I'm on a Browns podcast and, and Rashard Higgins. Like, I know the roster. I used to cover the Browns. I just got to preface it with that, Sean, before right. I don't go into <laughs> it. Um, but, but to me, the ceiling here is so much higher because those chemistry issues that Baker Mayfield has had with Odell Beckham Jr., they're, they're not there with Chase and Burrow. Like, that's not going to be an issue. It shouldn't be an issue, right? Because they know each other. They've dominated together. They're... Right. Uh, uh, they're really good friends off the field, like all of those things. So there's no building a rapport. It's just maybe reestablishing some things, tweaking some things and adjusting things uh, it's for the, the NFL game. And you're right. Tyler Boyd's great. I mean, he's a great slot receiver. He does everything you could ask him to do. When I think of the AFC North, I think of guys like this, these physical, tough, six foot one receivers that are willing to block, willing to go over the middle and get popped if it means that they can make the catch. And that's what Boyd is. And then on the other side, T. Higgins, he's he's going to be at worst a great number two, and he might end up being the number 1A on this offense if he develops some. Still young, 22 years old, uh, a guy that uh, should have had uh, the, the Bengals' uh, rookie record for receptions, ended up tying it with Chris Collinsworth, broke it in Week 17 last year, but got injured on the play, ah. and tweaked his hamstring, and the, the, uh, the play was... Um, called back due to a penalty. So he got that 68th reception and instead had to be stuck at 67. So he had 908 yards, uh, just a really good uh, rookie season. And I think he can build on that. So when I look at this receiving core, there are no weaknesses. Last year, for whatever reason, AJ Green was a liability. He was a weakness. It, It wasn't the same guy we remember. And while I think he could be much better in Arizona, it just didn't work. And so now you're getting a guy in chase who can transform your offense right away. And looking back, Sean, and again, I know it hasn't worked out a ton, but just to kind of compare it, I was in Cleveland when the Browns traded for OBJ mm-hmm. and the vision made sense, right? Even though the offensive line, there were some question marks, the vision made sense. And I know that's not why they won last year, uh, right. so certainly at the end of the year, right? When they, they made that push and Baker got in rhythm. But I think it's the same thing here with the Bengals is you look at it and you're not going to be able to double everybody. And so you spread teams out. You let Joe Burrow read the defense and and just spray it around the field. And he'll probably be able to get rid of the ball pretty quick. And they have made some offensive line additions, which I'm sure we'll get to besides Riley Reef. And I think that's kind of their plan on offense, which when you look back at last year, I think it makes sense. Now you need this offensive line to certainly take a step forward. And if it does, I like the vision. And that's why I was on board with taking Chase over Sewell, assuming the Bengals had him higher on their board, which they did. Yeah, and I agree. It it makes sense that the more talent you have on the outside, it increases your ability to either make some plays down the field or at least feel more confident in attacking defenses vertically, which you're seeing a lot more, especially when you look at the Kansas City Chiefs and how they attack a lot of teams is they use a lot of speed to stretch defenses vertically. And you see a lot of movement along the line of scrimmage to really confuse defenses. And that's where the modern NFL is going, where you want a lot of speed on the field and spread people out. And obviously that's a lot easier to do with three receivers on the field versus having more tight ends, something that the Browns like to do, but it also makes sense given their power zone scheme. Um, With Chase, um, again, I think it is the right move for them. And it kind of makes me always think back to that graphic that you would see on Twitter of this uh, Sewell versus any receiver, Joe Burrow trying to throw the ball. And then it's basically yeah. the flip side of any offensive lineman with Jamar Chase. And if there's a situation, if you believe Jamar Chase is going to be 
let's just, you know, keep it decent. If, if he even becomes a top 12 receiver, that's a much better position to be on than not really having that bona fide 1A uh, issue that you kind of still see with the Baltimore Ravens. And they've been drafting receivers almost every year for the past three seasons and still don't have an answer yet. No doubt. I mean, weapons win in today's NFL. And that's why, and I, I keep tying it back to the Browns just because maybe they're LSU receivers or whatever. Like, I wouldn't trade Odell if I'm Cleveland right now because you you need that downfield threat. I think if you had more downfield options, you would have been able to to beat the Chiefs after Mahomes goes down, right? And so that's that's part of it. And people are obviously focused on the defense there. But weapons are what's going to win. So any team that wants to take that next step, right, and they believe they have that quarterback – well, there's a reason Brady went to uh, Tampa Bay, and it wasn't because they they drafted Tristan Wirfs in the first round. It was because they were like, yeah, we have Chris Godwin, we have Mike Evans, we have O.J. Howard, and we're willing to go out and get Leonard Fournette. We'll go out and get Antonio Brown for you. We'll trade for Rob Gronkowski. We'll give you every weapon you could imagine, Tom. Weapons and, everywhere. And, and, and guess what? Then they went and got Giovanni Bernard this offseason after the Bengals released him, and he's a perfect fit alongside Tom Brady. So... You can never have enough weapons in today's league. And yes, you do have to keep your quarterback upright. Uh, that, that's There's no doubt, but there is a balance. And I think they chose correctly. Now, will that lead to wins? How long will it take to lead to wins? Really depends on Burrow. Depends on Zach Taylor. There's a lot of other circumstances that tie into it. But I, I do think that Chase is going to have a, a big, big, big rookie season and uh, and can be right there when you talk about LSU wide receiver greats. I think he could be right there in that mix. Yeah, and I would say one of the biggest things that's necessary in order to make that next move as a team, as a whole, is really is that you want to see improved play along the line of scrimmage, both on the offensive line and the defensive line. And I want to ask you uh, in terms of the draft, and I would say a little bit free agency as well, based off of some players that they signed, what was the overall philosophy for improving talent along the line of scrimmage? Well, the, the first thing that they they targeted, they wanted these big physical athletes. And that's why they had Jackson Carmen higher on their board than guys like Tevin Jenkins, who the consensus was the opposite. Do you right? They had Carmen ahead of Walker Little. They had Carmen ahead of some of these guys that um that honestly I had ahead, right? And it's just they viewed him as this. Former five-star recruit, six foot five, can move well, and that's why they took him with the forty-sixth pick after trading down in round two. They think he can be a guard and then develop into a tackle, and and I think that just that pick alone kind of foreshadowed and gave us a glimpse of what they were going to do. In in seven of their ten draft picks were uh, trench players, four defensive linemen, three offensive linemen. Uh, their second offensive line, we can stick with the theme there. Deontay Smith, really long arms, 35 and a half inch arms, 85 inch wingspan, comes from East Carolina and needed to put on a little bit of weight, had some COVID issues last year and lost some weight, but had a good showing at the senior bowl. And the Bengals think he can develop into maybe that future starting right tackle behind Riley Reef in a year or two. And, and that's the thing is like the pipeline, the depth of the Bengals offensive line has been so shallow where they, they've missed on guys. And so the backups have been dreadful. So, uh, you know, Bobby Hart is a fine backup tackle, but he's been their starting right tackle for years. Well, you can't have that. And, and so that that's the issue. And I think what they did is they really replenished the depth in, in some of these key areas. And then they also drafted Trey Hill, who has center 
guard flexibility comes from Georgia. They like him in the sixth round there. We'll see. I, th- I think he should probably make the team, at least as of now. And then on the flip side, and I'll just tie it back to the Browns last year when Baker Mayfield just threw the ball all over the field in week seven. I think he completed, it was 22 straight, I believe. I witnessed it. It was either 22 or 21 or 23 in that range. Straight yeah. passes with Odell Beckham Jr. injured and, and leads the Browns past the Bengals. Well, they need to find a way to make quarterbacks uncomfortable. And so that's why they drafted three edge players, uh, starting with Joseph Osai, who they did not think was going to be there at 69. You're talking about a big, physical, fast guy that doesn't stop moving, is is chasing down. So like, let's say he doesn't get to Baker Mayfield on a a screen or something like that. Well, he's going to run after Kareem Hunt. He's not going to stop and walk or anything like that. That's just how he plays and has the physical traits to, I think, be a contributor right away. Uh, same thing goes for Cam Sample, and then they went with White Hubert. And then the other guy I like, uh, honestly, a lot, and at the time I I questioned it, Tyler Shelvin out of LSU. He's a big, big guy. Big nose tackle, yeah, 350-plus pounds. But then I think back to week two, <laughs> and when the, the Browns had a, what was it, a, I think 28-23 lead over the Bengals, Thursday night football, they get the ball. Joe Burrow just leads the Bengals downfield for a, a touchdown to pull within one score. And I think the Browns ran it eight times all the way downfield through the middle of the Bengals defense. And they score a touchdown and the game's over because they're wasting clock and they're and they're also scoring. And it was that simple. Baker didn't have to throw it again. You can't have that. You can't have Lamar Jackson and the Ravens run for 200 plus yards like they did in week 17. And, and so getting these big strong guys in the middle and Tyler Shelvin alongside DJ reader. They also signed Larry Ogunjobi in free agency. And then you also add some edge help. I, I see the vision. I don't know if it's going to work. I see the vision. I think it makes sense. The logic is there and I think the logic is sound and it's going to be interesting to see how much better they are on the lines of scrimmage because they wanted to get bigger. They wanted to get faster, more athletic and, and really add depth to both areas. And I think they were able to do that in the draft. Yeah. I think the, the depth that they were able to add, especially along the defensive line was very important. And I think they addressed it in the right way in terms of adding veterans so that you don't have to force younger players in too soon if they're not ready yet, which I feel is a benefit to have as we're still dealing with the COVID environment. Teams are still dealing with issues of do players attend voluntary uh, organized team activities or, uh, non-mandatory mini camps, things like that. Of course, you have your rookie mini camps, which is a much added benefit compared to what you had last year, where pretty much everything was virtual over Zoom or whatever platform they decided to use. So just being able to get players in and see how they fit so that way you can have them in a row entering training camp, you know how to better utilize them to help that trajectory of them, you know, improving as a player. With Larry Ogunjobi, I feel like the it was it was pretty much a, a known that he wasn't going to sign with the Browns just because the money was going to be allocated to other positions. And I like the move for him to go down just four hours to Cincinnati and add more depth along that defensive line. Right next to DJ Reader, he kind of gets that same benefit of what he had of having a, a talented player next to him that he had in Sheldon Richardson. And he's not going back to that same issue where Travion Coley was basically the best player next to him, where, you know, he, I mean, he had some decent numbers, but we don't have any help. You're pretty much getting double teamed every single trip. Um, 
and you look at Tyler Shelvin, one of the things that uh, was talked about is maybe like he didn't have the highest production, but a true nose tackle that can just eat space that can develop into someone that can really, you know, obviously one of the biggest things is that he'll have to get his weight under control, but, you know, being in an NFL camp with dietitians and things like that, if they can handle that properly, that's going to be a guy that's going to make it much more difficult for the Browns to run the football. And obviously your draft thoughts is how do I first compete in my division? Since I have to play these teams, you know, two games every single year, the Ravens are a bona fide run team. They run that power option, power zone, whatever they want to do. They're going to run the ball on all 17 games. And then you look at the Steelers, obviously they didn't have a run game last year, but with the drafting of Najee Harris in the first round, they're going to look to run the ball more. Then, of course, the Browns have that two-headed monster of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. So you want to figure out ways how to slow down the run game for those teams. Joseph Asai, like you said, a high-motor player is definitely someone you want to have when you have teams like the Steelers that like to utilize those receiver screens, which can make a huge difference when you have Deontay Johnson basically acting as a running back, taking two-yard passes, and then running for, you know, 16 yards if you can get them before a first down, which is always good when your defensive lineman has that motor. And one thing that I was looking at was there's going to be an interesting training camp competition along the interior of the offensive line. So, of course, you have Jackson Carmen, a second-round pick out of Clemson, but then you kind of have a lot of bodies of who's really going to be that starting three because, you know, you still have Trey Hopkins, Billy Price, uh, Quentin Spain, who they signed from the Bills, Xavier Suofilo, a former second-round pick back in 2014. How do you think that interior of the offensive line is going to shake out? Well, Trey Hopkins will likely be the starting center if he's able to recover. He he suffered a torn ACL in Week 17 against the Ravens, which is just devastating, right? I mean, they were getting blown out, and you, you lose your starting center. He's stuck rehabbing for the rest of uh, essentially all offseason. So we'll see if he's back. I think they're hopeful, but it's just really tough when you, you do that in Week 17. Um, you know, in January. I mean, it was it was in the, the early part of January. Um, if not, it'll be Billy Price that I, I think will will start at center unless they they go out and add someone. Wouldn't be shocked to see them add a veteran center before camp or a, a center guard combination type guy. And then Trey Hill, obviously, he's going to try to battle to make the team. And if they do did add a veteran, then maybe that could uh, hurt his chances of doing so. Um, as, as far as the two guard spots. Yeah, I think Jackson Carmen's going to be the starting right guard. I think barring something really unforeseen, that's where they drafted him to be. He played left tackle at Clemson, but they really like his his ability to be a mauler, uh, to be aggressive, to be physical. He's big, strong, and uh, and can move. And so they, they like him right next to Riley Reef on that right side. And then at left guard, you name the two guys that I think it's going to be down to, but I'll give you a third just because you never know. Xavier Suofilo, absolutely in the mix there at left guard. He was basically signed to play right guard last year, got injured week one, and then all hell broke loose on the offensive line and things were just chaotic and they were plugging guys in for most of the season when he came back uh, weeks and weeks and weeks later. But to me, he might be the favorite right now because he he has most of his experience at left guard. Uh, Like you said, former second round pick. At the same time, Quentin Spain came in midseason last year and had a good showing, showed his versatility, played both guard spots, actually started at right tackle for them uh, one week. And that was uh, that was rough, to, to, to be honest with you, to, to ask him to do that. And he held his own. I believe that was against Pittsburgh, too. 
by the way, which was, uh, you know, tough when you're asking him to, to block TJ Watt and he's really a right. guard. But uh, I, he held his own. And, and so that's why he's back uh, on a one year deal. So I think it's probably between those two guys. But I'll give you a third name, Akima Denegy, sixth round pick out of Kansas last year. He has some traits that I know the Bengals like. And he got some some playing time later in the season. And one of the biggest additions, if not the biggest addition to the Bengals offensive line is new offensive line coach Frank Pollock. Uh, Jim Turner just wasn't good at his job. And I'm not sure how great Frank Pollock is, but I think he's much better than, than what they had. And, and so we'll see there. I think that's going to help. But uh, Akima Denegy could be someone that ends up getting in the mix at that left guard spot. And if not, I think it will be, like you said, either Quentin Spain or Xavier Suafilo. Okay, so uh, keeping it along the defensive line, one of the things that kind of puzzled me a little bit, I I still get the need of making sure you improve along the edge position, which is, I would say, besides quarterback, is the next most important position on the roster for any franchise. Can you kind of give some information of why they let Carl Lawson walk in free agency to sign Trey Hendrickson for basically the same salary crap hit on a yearly basis? They tried to keep Lawson and they were actually trying to thread the needle to get both. And okay. so when Carl Lawson opted to take the deal in, in with New York and, and the difference between the two deals, and I, I don't remember the numbers, but I, I remember I wrote about it at all Bengals and, and talked about it on Locked on Bengals. It's cap, uh, cap number might look one way, but the guaranteed salary that Carl Lawson got is much higher than what Trey Hendrickson got from a percentage mm-hmm. standpoint. And so, yeah, on average, four years, 60 million, three years, 45 million. But the difference is that those guaranteed dollars. So they wanted to keep both. They weren't in love with Lawson and his uh, inability to, to finish. I think that was something that they were concerned about. Only had five and a half sacks last year, but had a bunch of pressures, certainly impacted opposing quarterbacks. Was the really their only person on this roster that did so. So you lose him. And it's like, well, what what the hell are you doing? And and so they quickly pivoted. They locked up Trey Hendrickson later that night. And I was told earlier before the Lawson deal that Hendrickson was thinking everything over and going to make a decision the next day. So the fact that they made a push uh, to get him, I think it shows, one, that they really wanted him. And, and part of the reason why they they made that push, I think they think he's going to be better in the run game. We talked about the the physical division. They think he's going to be able to to finish plays and still be in that double-digit sack range. That's certainly why they're paying him. But more versatile, can actually help against the run. Carl Lawson, uh, they didn't love his ability to do that. So so we'll see. But yeah, I'm with you. Like You you spend a lot of money on Trey Hendrickson. You got this guy on Carl Lawson who walks. Are you better? Because you were 4-11-1 and now you're spending big money to stay the same at best. And and so that was, I don't think the, the one signing alone was questionable, but the fact that they didn't thread the needle and keep both, especially at the time before we saw what they did in the draft, it, it was certainly questionable. Right. And just looking at the numbers, uh, Lawson's contract essentially is a two-year deal worth $30 million, And they have a, a really a, a out after two years yep. in, ta- in terms of the New York Jets. And then with Hendrickson, Technically, um, his contract could be a two-year deal worth thirty-two million with a potential after year two. But given what their debt cap is, obviously you don't want to just give away seven and a half million unless obviously things just go terribly wrong. It's more of a three-year deal 
where you can save 15 million in year four, which will be 2024 if they decide to move on from him. So there's obviously the flexibility and a lot of teams, when you start to look at those contracts that they give, and I would say mostly for def- defensive players than anyone else is uh, those potential outs after two or three years. And I think that might be one of the biggest factors I'd say when people kind of look at the situation is if Lawson got a two-year deal, basically, even though he signed for three, you know, why, why not the Bengals try to take that same option, like you said, and sign both players? I think that would have been more ideal if you think about what you can get in the short term. And then if they both work out, you extend them for a longer contract. For sure. No, I mean, no doubt. And th- that would have been, I mean, man, you think about that pass rush, that would have been a, a great pass rush to have. You, you talk about those two guys uh, on one side or one side and then the other. Um, but yeah, I, I just, it, it's the way the Bengals structure contracts. And it's, it's funny because you're right. They're not going to cut him after one year, but they have an out in Hendrickson's contract if they want to get out of it. And, you know, it's it's just one of those things where the guaranteed dollars, I think technically it's only 16 million guaranteed or so on Hendrickson's deal. He's going to make more than that. He's going to be around for at least two years, like you said, but they don't like doing the, these big money guaranteed contract unless it's a quarterback. So Joe Burrow, he's going to get his guaranteed money if he plays well for the next couple of years. Right. But, but most of these guys don't. Even the A.J. Greens didn't get as much as uh, from a guaranteed standpoint as they would have. And the Bengals, they do it that way. And then they usually keep guys for the length of the contract. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just how they do do business. Yeah. So, um, and I will probably say we could agree both on this, that the defense was probably the one area of the team that probably needed the most improvement. And I mean, you really saw that a lot um, based off of their draft. And of course, who they brought in through free agency, just some additional players that they brought in, um, of course, Trey Hendrickson, Larry Ogunjobi, and then the cornerback room was a group that they definitely improved on. They signed Mike Hilton from the Steelers for a four-year deal, was $24 million, and then also Chidobe Azawuze, a three-year deal for $21 million and some change from the Cowboys. And then they also signed Eli, Appy, uh, Eli Apple excuse me, to a one-year deal. Uh, what are your thoughts on this overall cornerback room that changed so much especially after losing William Jackson and McKenzie Alexander to free agency. They better be better <laughs> because much like uh, when you swap out Carl Lawson for Trey Hendrickson, you're swapping out William Jackson, a guy you drafted and developed one of the only first rounders that you've gotten right over the past five, six years. And you lose him on by choice, by the way. I, I think it was almost a mutual decision. The Bengals didn't want him anymore. He didn't want to stay in, in Cincinnati. And then they go out and they get a Mike Hilton, who I really like. I mean, you talk about physical playmaker, can blitz, uh, will certainly help the pass rush as a nickel corner, might be the best blitzing nickel corner in the league. And then a Chidobe Awuzie, who does have solid ball skills, I think, is a, a pretty good athlete, but... Is, is it worth losing out on a guy like William Jackson, who outside of OBJ roasting him in week two last year, had a pretty good year? Uh, and that's that's the question. And, and how much better are they? I think they're certainly uh, they upgraded from Mike uh, with Mike Hilton from Mackenzie Alexander. But Awuzie isn't as good as uh, is William Jackson, the third. And, and so some might say, well, they, they signed Trey Waynes, who missed all of last year with a torn pectoral. They signed him in the offseason of 2020. And that's the guy who's replacing William Jackson III. Well, I haven't talked to one person in the league that isn't tied to the Bengals 
that thinks that Trey Waynes is a better player than William Jackson III. So it's going to be interesting to see how these pieces come together. Certainly they have a vision. They bolstered the trenches. They think that this secondary is upgraded. They love their safeties and Von Bell and Jesse Bates, which I totally get that. But will these corners be able to hold up when it's third and seven and you know the ball is going to insert whoever? If you're playing the Chiefs, it's Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey, right? Uh, the Browns, it's going to be one of those receivers probably. You know, Will they be able to get that stop? Some of it's pass rush, but certainly some of it's going to be on these corners to get it done. Yeah, and with Trey Waynes, you know, coming off that injury, he suffered the torn pectoral, had the surgery in September, and then was on injured reserve for pretty much the whole season. How, I feel like it's kind of tough for, one, he has the largest cap hit of anyone on the team next year, uh, over $15.5 million, and then he hasn't played a snap for the team. How do you think he's going to come back from that injury, and what sort of impact is, it, is he going to have? Because that's a huge, you know, shoe to step into or shoe to fill when William Jackson was that number one corner. And now the expectation almost is that you're going to be that guy because Mike Hilton and Awuzie, Hilton's, like you said, more of a slot nickel corner. And Awuzie has pretty much been a number two most of his career. Yeah, there's there's some pressure there. I've been told he's 100% full go, lifting, working, doing all of that. And that's why they didn't try to rush him back, you know, at the end of last year because he, he there's a chance he could have maybe pushed it and, you know, Heck, especially postseason, right? If you'd have given him another couple of weeks, he might have been able to play. Instead of doing that, let him get 100% recovered and ready to go. And oddly enough, the Bengals have an out. We were talking about contracts. Have an out after this year, they can get out of Wayne's deal. And so he better show it right away if he wants the, the third year uh, of that $42 million contract he signed. He signed basically the same dollar figures that Jack Conklin signed with the Browns the same okay. offseason. Three years, $42 million. And so that uh, um, the 41 million, let me do the math here. Yeah, 14 per. So it was 42 million. Sorry. Um, anyways, so there's pressure on him for sure. And I think if he's going to take that step and be a guy that he really wasn't in Minnesota, he was never really this lockdown, shutdown corner, even though he's a former first round pick. It's got to be this year. And so we'll see it. I think there's some pressure on him. But if he does go out and he plays well, then you're talking about, maybe locking him up for another year or two, adding an additional season or two onto that contract because he hasn't had any injuries. This isn't a guy that gets dinged up all the time. It was just one of those freak incidents where he was working out at the Bengals facility and um, got injured and and missed the season. So hopefully this was just a a blip on the radar for him and we'll see if he could take a step forward. Yeah, so I would say the biggest dark horse of that cornerback group is Eli Apple. You know, coming out of I believe it was Ohio State, he mm-hmm. played for the Saints first. Am I or Giants? Giants, um, and then he kind of bounced around. I believe he's with the Panthers. What was it last year? Yep. Um, and he hasn't really, you know, had that, you know, success that he was looking for coming out of college. W- what type of impact do you think he'll have um, if he makes a team? I think he's battling for that fourth cornerback spot with Darius Phillips. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where Phillips seems like more of an outside guy. They've used him in the slot some. Eli Apple, I think you could feel comfortable doing both. Can he make the roster? Does he have enough? He's been such a disappointment, you know, another former first-round type guy that uh, probably overdrafted a bit, but goes to New York. Things don't really work out. Goes to the Saints and 
plays okay. And then last year in Carolina only appeared in a couple of games. So um, very much a prove it year. Could be his last NFL shot. And um, yeah, he, he's he's battling for a roster spot. I think it's fair to say that about him. Now, do I think it's more likely than not that he's on the team? Yeah, I think so. But uh, will he be on the field regularly? I think that's going to depend on him and Darius Phillips and how that camp battle goes. And Phillips does have somewhat of an edge when you look at his ability to return punts. He's electric in the punt return game, and he has good ball skills. So if he can stay healthy, he's had injury issues as well, then I think maybe Apple could be on the outside looking in of those top four spots. Yeah, it could definitely be an uphill battle, especially with Phillips being one of the higher-graded cornerbacks last season. Um, So looking at a group that could really improve um, on that defense, I would definitely say is that second level. Um, Obviously, they have some young players there, but last season necessarily wasn't the sort of play that you would want to hope for. Uh, When you look at Jermaine Pratt, Logan Wilson, and Akeem Davis-Gaither, Pratt was drafted in the third round of 2019, and then Wilson uh, and Davis-Gaither were both drafted last year in the third and fourth rounds, respectively. But it was a pretty tough season, I would say, overall for the performance of the linebackers. Uh, based off of pro football focus grading, I know that's not the end-all be-all for everyone. But, you know, given that most people aren't watching every single snap for a linebacker, I would say it's a decent baseline. Uh, Pratt and Davis, Gaither, both graded in the 40s. And then Logan Wilson uh, had a pretty solid grade at 54.7 for his rookie season. Where do you think this group can go next year in terms of improving? And what do you think they need to improve the most on? They certainly need to take a step forward. And that's why, uh, one, I I think they're confident that they can do that and they have that ability. Uh, Two, they're just so young. And, and, you know, Logan Wilson uh, entering year two, I think expectations are pretty high for him. His responsibilities are going to be much higher. And uh, I'd expect him to be uh, an every down backer, a starter uh, that kind of takes that uh, Josh Bynes type of role. And hopefully runs with it because that, that's certainly why they drafted him. That was their long-term vision. And so you're you're hoping that he becomes an every-down linebacker. That And he had a couple of interceptions last year, but shows the ability to make plays and be that, that solid tackler, especially uh, against the run. And then the other two, I mean, I don't know what happened to Jermaine Pratt last year. I, I think there were times specifically against Cleveland. I remember Andy Janovich. And that might, this might have been week two during that drive I keep referring to, the game-clinching drive, essentially, where they ran it a bunch. I think Janovich just basically, and he didn't literally punch him in the face, but it was like he was punching Pratt in the face, and Pratt just didn't want it anymore by the end of the fourth quarter <laughs> uh, on a couple plays that I, I saw. And so I wonder about him because it's, uh, it's very much prove-it time. I thought he was going to take a step forward last year. Didn't really seem to. And it wasn't just against the Browns. I think there were multiple times where it just felt like he wasn't, I, I don't want to say trying, right? I, I Maybe he just didn't want to deal with the physicality of, I don't know. But we'll see with him. And then Akeem Davis-Gaither, I like him a lot. I think he's going to take a step forward. He was only 21 coming out of Appalachian State, uh, made an interception towards the end of last season. I think he's someone that you, you just need to give him a little bit of time. He's a coach's son, really good athlete. Just someone that's going to have to adjust to the NFL game. So I expect him to take a couple steps forward. Maybe they can use him uh, as a blitzer a little bit more this year. Um, the the thing I would want to see more of him and more from him is coverage. Can he become that? Because he's got the elite athleticism, 
right, that you look for in a linebacker to, to be able to cover in today's NFL. Can he develop and take a step forward coverage-wise? I think that's the big theme for Akeem Davis-Gaither in year two. Do you think there's any depth players that could potentially push any of those three for playing time early in the season? Oh, we'll see. We'll see on that because I wouldn't be shocked if they go out and they get a veteran between now and the start of camp. Now, I'm not saying that that's something they're definitely going to do, but to me, you look at what they have. And yeah, Marcus Bailey's another one who could take a step forward, but there isn't many guys that you're like, oh, well, this guy or this guy. There's only six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I'm just looking at the depth chart to make sure. Six true linebackers on the roster. And so Jordan Evans is more of a uh, veteran at this point of his career, special teams player. You got a guy in Keandre Jones, um, who's certainly not, you know, back end of the roster practice squad type guy. So Marcus Bailey would be the other one. And Marcus Bailey was a seventh round pick in 2020. Really good athlete. Does have those coverage skills. Played well for Purdue but he suffered a couple of torn ACLs. So that's another young guy that could end up uh, getting some playing time. So those are the four, and that's who they seem to be rolling with. Wilson, Davis Gaither, Pratt, Bailey, and not necessarily in that order. And uh, we'll see, because I really did like Davis Gaither, Wilson, and Bailey when they drafted him. I thought that they might have solved their linebacking issues, and this is kind of the year where you need to see more than just a flash here and there from some of these guys, if that is the case. Yeah, so uh, before I go into the final um, topic for the show, I was just wondering, to me, even when the Browns did it, I haven't necessarily been a fan of it, and especially at the round, a lot of these teams decide to draft them. Can you give some insight, and what are your thoughts on them drafting Evan McPherson in the fifth round? It's a risk. It's an instant risk because... Like you said, it, it, you can easily flame out very quickly as a kicker. But if it pans out, then they were, you know, th- then it's golden. Like if he's the next, everyone says Justin Tucker. No one's the next Justin Tucker, so I'm not going to do right. that. If he's the <laughs> next of all time. <laughs> yeah, if he's the next Harrison Butker, you take it and and you you feel good about it because you're planning to have this elite offense that's going to score a bunch of points and can go to Cleveland and, and win a 40 to 37 shootout. And so having a good kicker that can consistently kick from 50-plus yards, I get it. I understand it. And they uh, they worked with him. Bengals special teams coordinator Darren Simmons uh, at Florida's Pro Day worked with him and then watched him. He made 21 of 22 kicks. The one miss was 50, from 58 yards, and he made a 60-plus yarder. If he's just consistently hitting from 55, it's such a weapon. But to your point, and I'm not going to debate it because it's valid, Anytime you take a kicker in the draft, especially in round five, well, damn it, he better be good because they did it a couple of years ago with Jake Elliott, and I thought Jake Elliott was fine, but he wasn't as consistent as Randy Bullock, and so they cut Jake Elliott, they lose him, and there are so many people that were like, oh, yeah, fifth rounders, you lose fifth rounders all the time. I don't care if you lose fifth rounders all the time. If you're spending a fifth rounder on a kicker, he better make the damn team. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case with Evan McPherson. I think he's easily... Uh, gonna make the team and uh, and we'll see how good he can be. But yeah, absolutely agree with you. It is a risk. I also see it on the flip side. If they are right in their assessment of him, then it it makes sense and it's worth it, right? I mean, I would take, you know, Justin Tucker or Harrison Butker or any of these elite kickers. If you're getting them in the fifth round, that's a steal. But it's just really, 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 really hard. Not only physically but mentally 
to, to get to that level and be one of those elite kickers. Yeah, and that was one of the things that they were kind of hoping for. The Browns, I should say, were hoping for with Austin Cyber. And is he still with the Bengals? Or he is. This is kind of, okay. He is. So that's probably someone that you'll see, you know, in a training camp competition. But obviously, they would want to lean more towards Evan McPherson, just given the fact that they drafted him this year. But you know, that, that is what you're hoping for. And when you have an offense that has the ability to produce points, it is a huge difference where you have the confidence of if I'm in a situation where I have to kick you know, a 50 to 55 yard field goal. Sometimes teams, you notice like, okay, well, we're in a situation where we don't believe our kicker can make this. So now they have to either start going for third or, you know, or sometimes fourth downs. And you've seen that a couple of times with um, Kevin Stefanski last year. It's where Cody Parkey was consistent, but he also doesn't have the biggest leg. So once, you know, if you're in bad weather conditions and pretty much most of the games that the AFC North plays in October and, and on, usually isn't the best weather. Once it gets cold, it gets very difficult, you know, to kick the ball consistently, especially in Cleveland um, with that lake win. So you want to see someone with a strong enough leg. And you've seen that with the Baltimore Ravens when they were the number one scoring offense a couple years ago. Even if they didn't score a touchdown, you were pretty much almost guaranteed three points with Justin Tucker. And a field goal versus no points can make a huge difference in how your opponent has to game plan the rest of their, you know, the rest of their um, series. Um, especially if they're playing from behind because of those field goals. And you see it almost every year where teams can't score any touchdowns, but you see a kicker make six field goals, and then it's pretty much a strong defensive game, and they end up winning because their kicker was, you know, five for five or or six for six or whatever. So that's definitely something you want to see in terms of improving on the special teams. Um, And How how overall do you think the special teams will improve uh, next year? I think their special teams are are going to be good because I believe in Darren Simmons and, and Darren Simmons I think is one of the best special teams coordinators in the NFL right now. But they uh, for the second straight off season lo- lose some guys. Clayton Fedulum last off season, this off season, Seathan Carter is a big part of their special teams unit. But they still have Kevin Huber at punter. I do think it is interesting, um, and, and I'll just point it out: there could be a camp battle at punter too. Huber only on a one year deal. And they did sign Drew Chrisman, an undrafted free agent out of Ohio State. And he's a Cincinnati native, much like Kevin Huber was when uh, he signed with the Bengals way back in ooh, at the end of the 09 season, I believe it was, or 2010. And so you never know there. Maybe Chrisman's a practice squad guy for a year and then replaces Huber. But uh, I, I do think at punter, they're going to be fine. Um, I think McPherson will certainly be an upgrade from Randy Bullock. Uh, who his infamous, infamous uh, calf cramping uh, won't be forgotten anytime soon. So uh, I do think from that aspect, they'll be better. And then with Darren Simmons running the show, I think he'll be able to find the right pieces to to put in place to make everything work. Okay. So um, before I ask you, one of the things that will always be discussed, even throughout the season, is Joe Burrow, you know, his health. And where does he go after suffering the knee injury last year? And my question to you is, you know, what is necessary for Joe Burrow to make a jump in his sophomore season? Uh, Some of the things that I looked at was, one, you want to see him play all 17 games. Playing a full season, obviously, is important for him to show that he's 100% healthy, but more because he gets that experience being so young in his career. Um, Obviously, you want to see improved offensive line protection. They showed in free agency and throughout the draft that they wanted to get better along the offensive line and keep Joe Burrow upright, obviously, because you don't want another situation where your franchise quarterback is going down with the season ending injury. And then also, 
I feel like he hasn't been talked about a lot, even after receiving his contract last year. Um, you really want to see Joe Mixon healthy. And if he can have a thousand yard rushing season, I feel like that'll take a ton of pressure off of Joe Burrow because now they're not forced to have to throw the ball, you know, 40, 50 times every single week when you have Joe Mixon that can run the ball with success. And at one point, Bill Belichick did say he was the best running back in the NFL. Mixon is extremely talented, extremely talented. And uh, the, the thing about Joe is he's he's big, he's thick and fast right but his his size like when you meet him like he's bigger than Nick Chubb i've seen both in person up close and personal and and that's the crazy part is i think he has this uh, like crazy potential and it just hasn't been recognized yet and i'm not saying by the way browns fans that he's better than Nick Chubb because he isn't numbers say that so i'm not saying that. <laughs> um but he's bigger than him and and i think can be this complete back that is just great at blocking and can catch out of the backfield cuz he's got good hands and he can do all these things but you're right there's some untapped potential there so i, I agree with you that that's part of unlocking this offense uh is getting joe mixon not not just to 1000 yards rushing because he's done that but get him involved in the passing game and not just dump offs when you need him like get him involved and make him a weapon here and, and just see if he's capable of being that guy. Cause he's got all the traits to be that guy, but he, he's not in the same breath as, you know, some of these elite running backs are right now. I think he has the talent to be, I think the Bengals feel that way, but he, he certainly hasn't done that. And then as far as Joe Burrow and what he needs to uh, improve on, absolutely. You know, staying healthy is one thing. So that'll coincide with the offensive line. You hope the offensive line's a little better. I do agree with you that this coaching staff can't say, let's throw it 57 times a game and expect Joe to just take the hits that he takes. Because, look, he's a playmaker. He's going to take some hits. And and at the same time, he does need to find a balance where, yeah, maybe don't throw it away, but no, you got to get rid of it now and and find a way to get rid of it now. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jamar Chase benefits uh, or Joe Burrow benefits from Jamar Chase is because of that, because of the separation that these guys are going to be able to get. Because now T isn't doubled, right? Or Tyler Boyd isn't doubled. It's it's going to be maybe Jamar or, or maybe one of these other guys. But if so, you just go uh, the other way and, and look the, uh, to one of the other receivers that isn't being doubled. So that that's it. And the other thing I, I really need to see, and I, I think this has to do with the offensive line. It had to do with John Ross not really contributing um, and, and then A.J. Green not being the guy that they hoped he would be when they placed the franchise tag on him. They need, need, need Burrow to connect with these guys downfield. Uh, I'll go back to week two again. Joe Burrow threw it 61 times, 37 uh, completions, I believe, for like 316 yards. That's not efficient at all. That's the opposite of efficient. That's, you know, 37 completions for 316 yards. What What is that, Joe Bur- or Joe Mixon with 37 carries for 316 yards? Because that sounds more efficient, right? That sounds more like a, a, a rushing line. Not that uh, many running backs run for that many uh, attempts or yards in today's game. Yeah. But you get my point. And so they need some more explosive plays. And that that's going to start with, one, keeping him upright, but obviously Joe being more accurate downfield. And he was at LSU, and I think uh, he, he could certainly be. And if he's that, this team is going to be fun to watch. They may not win a bunch of games, but they're going to be fun to watch because they're going to be putting up points and have explosive plays, and you're going to have Burrow and Chase and Mixon and Boyd and Higgins, and these guys just all you know, going crazy and averaging 28, 30 points a game. And, and that, that certainly is possible, but Joe's certainly going to have to take a step forward for it to happen. Do you think there's a player in the receiver room that can 
be that John Ross type of player. Well, obviously they were just hoping that he could be a vertical threat, but you got to catch the ball in order to be a threat. Um, do you think there's a player that they could potentially have in that mode to kind of stretch the field vertically? They wanted another receiver in the draft. They didn't want to just take chase. They wanted a receiver on day three at some point, and the board didn't fall the way they hoped it would it, to a degree where they could add another speedster, right? Uh, almost like a, a, an Anthony Schwartz, right? Where he's, hey, he might be just this really fast guy, but he's going to help balance everything else they have. But no, I think that they're going to be banking on Jamar Chase and T Higgins to be those field stretchers. I think that's kind of their their vision here because you look at this receiving unit behind, and I'll call them a big three, Chase, Higgins, and Boyd. It's Auden Tate. And yeah, he's he had 40 receptions a couple of years ago. But after that, you don't really have much. You know, they just signed Trent Taylor. That's not someone that you're going to, you know, do circles over, cartwheels over. Mike Thomas is in that room. He's not a downfield separator by any stretch. So they don't really have one of those guys. And uh, and so to me, I think it's one that they're banking on Chase, who did run a, a, a 4-3-4 to be part of that field stretching unit. And the same thing with Higgins. But I do know that they, in a perfect world, would have probably got one of those uh, other speedsters J- just to, again, increase the depth later in the draft. But it, it didn't fall that way, so they didn't do it. Right. So um, this season now with 17 games, would you say over or under seven? <sighs> oh, that's close. See, so Vegas would say under. They, they have the over-under at five and a half last I saw, I believe. It might it might have been up to six since it's uh, – that uh at seven that's like right in line like i (laughs) i i would probably take my instant schedule reaction i think i had them at well no so it wouldn't be seven and nine i think i had them at eight and nine instant schedule and that was a very optimistic approach and i i took it that way because hell it's you know still may but um i guess i'll take over Probably in this division, man, the, the only way you're really going over is if Zach Taylor really is that guy. And we don't know that yet. And that's the problem. Joe Burrow is. Joe Burrow might end up being the best quarterback in the division. And I know Browns fans don't want to hear it. And, and Ravens fans certainly won't want to hear it. But he might end up being that. But you need other help. Otherwise, this is another Carson Palmer situation where I think there was a certainly a time where Palmer was the best quarterback in the division. Uh, but the defense couldn't stop a nosebleed. And it was a different type of NFL then. So... Yeah, that that's part of it. I would probably take the the over on your podcast. But would I bet on it, Sean? I would probably say no, <laughs> I would not bet on that. But uh, for the for the sake of saying it, but I, I think that's right in the range. I think they're yeah. probably like a six to eight win team. But if Burrow takes two steps forward and is the next second year quarterback to win MVP, well, then, they, you know, their ceiling could be 10 or 11. Their ceiling. Right. But that's, you know, that's not necessarily likely. And if things go haywire and they have a bunch of injuries, well, I could see them winning four to five games again because, well, this coaching staff has six wins in two seasons. And that's pretty damn hard to do. Even Freddie Kitchens won six games in a season. Yeah. I think that seven, which made it a tough question. I think seven is like right around that mark. And it's just so odd to hear that seven and 10 is the new six and 10. Um, And I think there's that kind of question of if a team is eight and nine or nine and eight, if you were 
eight and eight last season, are you really that much better? You're like, how, how does one extra game really determine if a team is really improving? If you really just get one more game and then you just end up eight, and nine or nine, and eight, is there that big of a window of this team is much better than that team that went eight and nine? Sure. I know. Right. And it's just one, one game difference. And I'll tell you this, I think if, if they go either of those and they finish that way, you feel really good about it. But I, I agree. Is there a difference? And if anything, at that stage, because you're not getting the playoffs with either of those records, barring something unforeseen, you know, in the AFC North, I think you're going to have to win a minimum of 10 games yeah, to get sure. in. And, and, you know, maybe the wild card plays out that way. But even that to me feels sort of unlikely. So I agree with you. I don't know what the new eight and eight is. I, I, I guess eight and nine, but nine, you're right. Nine and eight isn't going to seem, but it does. It sounds better, but no, we know it's only a, a win difference. But nine and yeah. seven feels a lot different than eight and eight, doesn't it? Or am I crazy? I, I think nine and seven sounds a little bit better than eight and eight because, like, you were a little bit closer to ten and six versus eight and eight. Like, you were just there at a losing season, which sounds crazy when it's just still only one game. Maybe it's the there's a two game difference with nine and seven, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know it's only one game, but there's a, a two uh, two games difference in the win column versus the loss column. And so nine and eight versus eight and nine, it's only one. So it just doesn't seem that much, much different. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> the 17 games, man, it's going to, it's going to be tough to uh, get a, I mean, six and 11, five and 12, like these numbers are just 12 and five, 11 and six. It's just that they're weird. Yeah, for sure. And, and it, I think it, it'll change to a little bit how you um, evaluate some of your coaches in terms of their improvement versus 16 games to 17 games. Um, but overall, uh, James, I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining me for episode 10 in the season finale of the first season of the Browns Digest podcast. Is there anything that you would like people to look out for in terms of Locked On Bengals or anything on the All Bengals uh, website? That's simple, man. Allbengals.com. And then obviously the Locked On Bengals podcast. And then if there are anyone, anyone out there, any YouTubers, I just launched Cincinnati Bengals Talk on YouTube we're growing fast, and so I know this is a Browns podcast. But if they're looking for just anything, even during the season when it's uh, but you know before the Battle of Ohio, that's that's the place to go to get any Bengals intel. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate you so much for being on the show. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to have you back in during the regular season when the Bengals and Browns meet up. Uh, you guys can go ahead and follow James at James Rapine. It'll be in the show image. Of course, the Browns Digest podcast is available on all your famous streaming audio platforms, Spotify podcast, Apple podcast, Google Stitcher, all of those. Um, I want to thank you guys again for joining me for episode 10. We will be back for season two, episode one with uh, SI's own Brandon Little. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you next time.